apologize to you again. The cold that I had last week seems to be hanging around, so uh, I, I may have to stop for a drink a couple of times throughout this, uh, throughout this talk. Earlier this year, <clears throat> you may have heard this, NBA Commissioner Adam Silver commented in an interview. I want you to hear this. He said, when I meet with players, what surprises me is that they are truly unhappy. Now, these are some of the most talented, wealthy people in the world. When I meet with players, what surprises me is that they are truly unhappy. If you are around a team in this day and age, there are always headphones on. The players are isolated, and they have their heads down. He went on to say that he has discovered that there are pervasive feelings of loneliness and melancholy in players across the league, even referenced a conversation with an, an unnamed superstar in the league, and he described the extent of the superstar's unhappiness and isolation in this way. He said, it is to the point where it is almost pathology. But listen to what he says at the end of the interview. He says, I don't think it's unique to these players. I don't think it's something that's just going around superstar athletes. I think it's a generational issue. Now here's the thing, he's right and he's wrong. He's right that it isn't just superstar athletes who feel these things, but he's wrong that this is a generational issue. The prevalence of smartphones and headphones and, and, and earbuds has made it all very noticeable to the eye, but the trend, this trend toward isolation, individualism, and depression, anxiety that comes with it has been building inertia for decades. In 2017, New York Magazine published an article that was titled this, For 80 years, young Americans have been getting more anxious and depressed. Just a few years before that article, the very popular New York Times op-ed columnist David Brooks wrote an article entitled, What Our Words Tell Us. And he was writing on this subject of individualism. Google had just released a database of over 5 million books published between 1500, between the year 1500 and the year 2008. Brooks referenced in his article researchers who had used Google to search how frequently certain words showed up in those books. For instance, they found that words like friendship, common good, community, those kinds of words were used less in books between 1960 and 2008 than books written before 1960. Books after 1960 used more individualistic words like self, standout, unique, and phrases like I come first and I can do it myself. Not only that, but as the 20th century wore on, Researchers found that books included, uh, that books, uh, that words like honesty and virtue and patience and compassion became far less frequent in those very same books. Here's how Brooks concluded his article. He says, over the past half century, society has become more individualistic. As it has become more individualistic, it has also become less morally aware because social and moral fabrics are inextricably linked. The atomization, in other words, the breaking down to individual parts, the atomization and demoralization of society have led to certain forms of social breakdown. 
not just this generation. It's been happening for decades. But that individualism has led to certain forms of social breakdown that we can all see all around us. The antidote to this destructive and dominant idea of individualism in Western culture is the subject that Jesus is addressing in the very controversial parable that we're going to be looking at today. So I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles with me this morning to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. Um, This is the third week in a series of sermons called Unexpected Truth, in which we're looking at six of the parables that Jesus taught. On the surface, Parables seem to be, and I've said this in the weeks prior, parables seem to be unassuming stories in which Jesus uses common, ordinary things to teach spiritual truth. But for the thoughtful person, these parables always contain paradigm-shifting, life-altering, mind-blowing, unexpected truth for people who care, as I said, to think deeply about them. I want to start reading at verse 1 of Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17 Uh, Verse 1, Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with with a millstone tied around their neck, in other words, to drown. And to cause one of these little ones, and he's not talking about children here, he's talking about uh, the disciples, he's talking about uh, uh, people who are following Jesus, these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. He says, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Let's stop there for just a moment. This passage divides very neatly into two halves, verses 1 through 4, and then verses 6 through 10. With the advantage of having read and studied the last half of the passage, I want to boil what Jesus is saying in these verses, in this whole passage, but certainly in these verses too, down to one word. One terribly objectionable, terribly offensive, four-letter word. Brace yourself. It's the word duty. It's the word duty. Jesus shatters in these verses and the verses that follow any false illusions that we have about our independence. In this part of the passage, Jesus tells us that not only are we inextricably connected to one another, but more than that, Jesus is saying, and this is a very countercultural point, he's saying we have a duty to one another. Uh, We have a duty to one another. Now, if you think about it, This idea that we have a duty to one another, that we're not individuals unrelated to one another, this idea uh, isn't a Christian truth. It's not a Christian truth. It's an obvious truth for everyone in all places, everywhere. We're inextricably connected to one another, and therefore we have a duty to one another. That's an obvious truth. If you try to live otherwise... If you try to say, if you don't like what I do, that's your problem. Or if you try to say things like, what I do is my business, it's none of your business. Or if you try to say, you have no right to tell me what to do with my body. That is detachment from reality of the highest order. You are not your own, you see. If you shout fire in a crowded room, people are going to panic. 
And on the lighter side, if you order a drink for everyone in your office in the drive-thru at Starbucks, all the cars behind you are going to be sitting up there for a long time, right? This is obvious stuff. So this isn't just some Christian truth, but Christ followers do honor this reality. Jesus calls out two specific situations in these first four, four, four verses in which Christ followers are to recognize their duties to people. Now, there's more than two, certainly, but arguably, these are two of the most important responsibilities that we have to other people. First, Christ followers have a duty, Jesus says, to not lead people astray. Uh, we have a duty to not lead people astray. Now, you're going to have to just trust me on this because I don't have time to explain all of this thoroughly today. But Jesus is not referring here to the fact that your actions can lead someone to sin, although that can happen. What is in view here is anything we say that would cause a person to believe that there is salvation through any other name than Jesus Christ. When a church and its people intentionally water down the gospel, when a church and its people encourage people to believe that their good works can save them, when a church and its people intentionally encourage people to believe that all religions are the same, they are causing people to stumble because they are not telling people the truth. Uh, the Pharisees, Israel's religious leaders, were actively trying to suppress the truth of Jesus Christ and to lead people away from Him. This Jesus, this Jesus makes clear from what He says should happen to them is a high crime against humanity. Why? Because Jesus is humanity's only hope. There is no other name under heaven by which a person can be saved. To tell people otherwise, to lead people to believe otherwise, is to lead them into eternal demise. We have a duty to other people to not lead them astray. Then in verses 3 and 4, Jesus says, Christ followers have a duty to forgive people. We have a duty also, does it, he says, as part of this forgiving. We have, a, we have a duty to actually confront people lovingly when we see them in destructive patterns of behavior. But when they repent, we have a duty to forgive people. Now again, this is not a Christian truth. Like this is an obvious reality for everyone to live otherwise is detachment from reality. I mean, for anyone and everyone, listen, for anyone, you don't have to be a Christian, for anyone and everyone, if life has lived nothing more than tit for tat, if, if I meet every wrong that has been done to me with another wrong, whether I'm a Christian or not, every single relationship I have will descend into a downward spiral of despair and destruction. Every family will be torn apart at the seams. Every company will cease to exist. Every nation will be dis destroyed. Not forgiving people is choosing the nuclear option. It is mutually assured destruction because every single one of us has hurt someone and every single one of us has been hurt by people. To not forgive people is to choose mutually assured destruction in every relationship in your life and in the world. This isn't just a Christian truth, but again, Christ followers honor reality. Even to a degree 
that would seem absurd to others. We understand, Christ followers understand that we don't have the right to nurse grudges. We don't have the right to make people pay. We, we don't have the right to exact revenge on people. We don't have the right to be passive aggressive to people. Christ followers, Jesus says, are marked by an unrelenting, unending, unconditional forgiveness. Now listen, to be sure, like there's a great deal more to say about forgiveness than I have time to say today. How do you forgive people? I mean, that would be something that we could talk about. What's the distinction between forgiveness and reconciliation? Jesus doesn't answer those questions here, neither am I, because I don't have time to do that this morning. But I will say this. If as, if as I talk about this responsibility that you have to other people to forgive them, Jesus says, no matter how many times they hurt you, forgive them. If that's overwhelming to you, you aren't alone. The disciples felt that too. That's why the text says in verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Which is another way of saying, are you serious right now? Like, this is impossible. Jesus, you don't know the people I know. You don't know the people around me. You don't know my coworkers. You don't know my husband. You don't know what my parents have done to me. You don't know how deeply and how frequently I've been hurt by people. I want to I close myself off from people. I don't want to be connected to people. I don't want to be vulnerable. I don't want to forgive anyone. Lord, increase my faith. That's what the disciples are saying. We can't do this. Which moves us from the idea of the duty we have to one another to the second half of this passage. And the controversial parable that Jesus tells in, starting in verse 6. Jesus says in verse 6, he replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. And he says, suppose, this is really where the parable begins, he says, suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he, he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you've done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Wow. Wow. Okay. You could probably see why this parable is so controversial. Like, what just happened here? Well, it's really pretty simple. Jesus just told us that no matter how uncomfortable, how uncomfortable it might make us, no matter how vulnerable forgiveness makes us, no matter, how, no matter how difficult it might seem that, our, that we have this duty toward other people, what he just told us is that our duty to other people proceeds from our duty to God. Here it is. Here it is. We have a duty to God because we are his servants. And it is out of that duty to him that comes our duty to one another. Here's what I think is so uncomfortable about this passage. 
about this, this parable. When you read this parable, the way the farmer treats his servant sounds appalling because you fundamentally confuse the nature of the relationship between the farmer and the servant. You're thinking of the servant as an employee. You know, what's the difference between a servant and an employee? Well, one of the major differences is at the end of the day, an employee gets paid for his labor. Like there's a quid pro quo relationship between the employee and the employer. I do something for you, and you do something for me. You pay me at the end of the day. I do your work, and after I do your work, you owe me something. But Jesus isn't describing an employee-employer relationship here. Uh, In Jesus' day, when a person owed another person money and couldn't pay it off, well, they couldn't go file bankruptcy. The person to whom you owed the money could just throw you in jail. But instead of throwing you in jail, they could also allow you a more gracious option, and that was to work off your debt. Like you would become a servant to them until you paid off your debt. Now, if you think of this like slavery in the American past, you don't have the right picture. The person to whom you owned, uh, owed the debt didn't own you as a person, like in slavery in the American past, or the ideas behind slavery in the American past. They just owned your labor until you paid off the debt. So at the end of the day, the servant doesn't get paid because the owner doesn't owe him anything. In fact, it's the other way around. The servant owes the owner. And so you have to get your head around this distinction. A genuine faith relationship with God is a servant-lord relationship, not an employee-employer relationship. And that means two things. First, and we said this a few weeks ago, God doesn't owe you anything. The farmer doesn't owe the servant a dinner, doesn't owe the servant thanks, doesn't owe him anything. Nothing that the servant does obligates the farmer because the servant is indebted to the farmer. God doesn't owe you anything. Not even your your obedience obligates him. He doesn't owe you salvation. He doesn't owe you the things you want or dream of. In fact, you owe him a debt that you can never pay off because you and I have rebelled against him. We're sinners. Anything good that happens to you in this life is a result of his goodness and grace, not an obligation that he owes you. So he doesn't owe you anything. That's the first distinction in a a servant-lord relationship. Here's the second one. In an employee-employer relationship, servants can be choosy, but in a servant-lord relationship, servants can't be choosy, and here's what I mean. In an individualistic culture like ours, you hear people say all the time things like I talked about earlier, I choose choose what is right and wrong for me. No one has the right to impose their external standards on me. But servants don't get to be choosy about what they will or won't obey. An employee always has the right to opt out of his employer's commands. You can always say, no, I don't want to do that, and quit. But a servant can't do that. A servant obeys whatever his Lord tells him to do because he is indebted to him. See, the idea here is that you are not your own. You have a duty to other people that proceeds out of your relationship with God. 
even if that means you have to forgive people that you don't want to forgive. You have a duty to other people because you have a duty to God, and God commands you to forgive everyone, no matter how often they have hurt you. Yesterday afternoon, I got the phone call that no parent ever wants to get. Came from my oldest son. He and my middle son, he and my middle son, they're roommates, they live in Dallas. They'd been in a serious car accident. That, by all accounts, uh, they're lucky to be alive. Car was totaled, airbags deployed, cuts and bruises, aches and pains, frayed nerves. Nothing more serious than that. A driver had swerved carelessly into their lane, causing them to have to react and crash headlong into a guardrail. The driver didn't stop. The driver just kept going. And anyone who is a parent knows the reactions that you have in a moment like that. First, there's relief, but second, rage. I wanted, and I do not exaggerate, I wanted to find that person, and I wanted to murder that person. That would have been profoundly satisfying to the human part of me. Christ tells me in this passage that I am to forgive whoever that person was. Now, I'm going to tell you that that sounds unreasonable to me. I don't even see how I could do such a thing. But you see, as a servant, I don't get to choose who I will and won't forgive and under what circumstances I will forgive. Servants don't get to be choosy. A servant obeys whatever his Lord tells him to do even if he doesn't understand why. Or in my case, even if he doesn't know where he would summon the power to do so. Which takes us back to the disciples' request. Lord, increase our faith. And I get that question this morning. I get that question. And you have people in your world that you you have an obligation to forgive. And yet you understand exactly what the disciples are saying. Lord, increase my faith because it doesn't, I can't do it and it doesn't seem right. I don't understand how to do it. I don't understand that I would do it. And I have no idea where the power is going to come to do it. Lord, increase my faith. That's what you're thinking to yourself this morning. If you're a servant, you have the obligation to forgive. Your ex, your boss, your co-workers, the person who abused you, the person who sexually abused you, the person who emotionally abused you. The servant of the Lord Jesus Christ has the obligation to do what the, what the Lord tells him to do. You don't get to be choosy. You don't get to be choosy. Jesus' response to the disciples is fascinating. It's widely misunderstood. These comments that he makes about the faith as small as a mustard seed, people get this wrong, what this means. The reason Jesus chooses a mustard seed in this comparison is precisely because it is a really small seed. He wants to make the point that the size of the seed does not dictate the size of what the seed will become, or even if the seed will become anything at all. It's not the size of the seed. Small seed can become a huge tree. 
Now listen, I'm not a botanist, a botanist by any stretch of the imagination, but I do know this much. No matter the size of the seed, anything with life in it can only flourish if it abandons its individuality to what lies beyond it. For the seed to become anything, it has to abandon its independence from the soil for which it was created. It has to become part of something greater, the soil. In your hand, a, a seed doesn't become anything, but when it's put into the soil for which it was created, the seed draws on the heat energy from the ground and the moisture and the nutrients in the soil, and as it draws upon all of that, it grows, and one day it will reach its full potential. Jesus wants the disciples to see, he wants me to see, he wants you to see this morning, that it's not the size of your faith that matters. Because the power that you need, the power that I need, isn't in my faith or your faith. Power isn't in faith. The power is in the object of our faith. To flourish as a human being, to be the kind of person who can even forgive someone whose carelessness nearly killed two of your sons, all you need is just enough faith to abandon your precious individuality and what seems right and what seems reasonable to you and to draw from the life and the power that is in Christ. That's the only way you flourish. It's the only way to abandon your individuality, to abandon your individualism, to abandon your independence, and to open yourself up to the power of Jesus Christ. It's the only way only way. It's the only way you flourish. only way you can become the kind of person that Jesus describes here. Here's the irony of individualism. You know, I said we live in, in this individualistic Western culture. When you say, I am the captain of my soul... I decide what is right and wrong. I exist for myself. No one's external standards can be put upon me to tell me what is right and wrong. You really aren't thinking as individually, as individualistically and freely as you think you are. Like you think you're being individualistic by rejecting the externally imposed truth of the Bible on your life. But you are in turn, simply accepting another set of ex externally imposed ideas. The externally imposed ideas of a Western individualistic culture that says you should be the captain of your life and no one else should be. Everyone is a servant of something or someone. Everyone. And, and what's the result of this Western individualistic mindset that says, I'm, I'm, I am my own. I am no one else's. I do what's right. I do what I decide is right. I live for myself. No one else. No one else tells me what's right and wrong. What's the result of that? Well, you heard it a moment ago, and I'm going to repeat it to you again, because if I say anything about what the result of that is, I just sound like a pastor, and you don't believe pastors. So let me just read to you again from the commissioner of the NBA, from New York Magazine, from David Brooks, a New York Times columnist. Let me quote him again. This isn't coming from a pastor. Listen. Adam Silver, 
When I meet with players, what surprises me is that they are truly unhappy. If you're around a team in this day and age, there are always headphones on. The players are isolated. They have their heads down. New York Magazine, for 80 years, young Americans have been getting more anxious and depressed. David Brooks, over the past half century, society has become more individualistic. As it has become more individualistic, it has also become less morally aware because social and moral fabrics are inextricably linked. The atomization and demoralization of society have led to certain forms of social breakdown. That's the result of the Western individualistic mindset. That's it. Now let's talk about, as we close, what's the result of a mindset that says, I will abandon myself. I'll abandon myself to the power of God. Listen to what the psalmist says. Listen how different this is. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He will become like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. You don't need more faith to flourish into the person Jesus describes. You need to draw on Christ's power. You need to abandon your individuality and you just need enough faith to say, I can't do this. I can't flourish on my own. I was built for, I was designed for something greater and for someone greater. I am not my own. That's all the faith you need. Because the power is in Christ, not in your faith. In your faith. You need to see, you need to understand that the owner in this parable ultimately became the servant. Our owner, Jesus Christ, came to earth. We owed him a terrible debt. But on the cross, he became a servant and demonstrated his power by paying our debt and dying for our sins. He was buried into the ground, rather like a seed. And three days later, he arose from the grave and by doing so, demonstrated the power he has not only to pay for our sins, but to create new, flourishing life out of once dead people. That's the power of the gospel. The power that you need to flourish, the power that only comes by abandoning your individuality to the life-giving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what you need today. Not more faith, just enough faith to abandon your individuality and to draw upon the life-giving power of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you need. Bow your heads with me today. Lord Jesus Christ, we in this room have been as influenced by an individualistic culture as much as the people outside of this room. Lord, we uh, often choose to live as people who have no duty to one another, no responsibility to one another. We live isolated, individualistic lives. We perhaps come to church, check it off a box, but we don't build relationships any deeper than that with anyone. Lord, uh, for many of us, we do very little to nurture, to nurture the, the faith that we have, 
to draw upon the power that is in the gospel? Lord Jesus Christ, would you today impress upon us that we were not built to be alone. We were not built to live on our own. We were built to draw power from you. Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman, whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on your law, that person meditates day and night, and he or she will become like a tree planted by streams of water, bearing fruit in season and whose leaf never withers like the person who tries to live individualistically from you and from people. Thank you for these truths. Thank you for what you have done for us. The owner became a servant. And that's unfathomable. But we thank you for that truth. And it is in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship and pray today. 